So anyway, he was walking in Boston. It was morning, winter time. With his cane, he was breaking the ice puddles. So finally, he turned to them. He said, this is the job of a guru. He breaks the artificial-like state of the heart, that it's frozen, incapable of receiving love and giving love. And he makes it flowing as his natural state of water that flows. <laughs> so this is the job of a guru, to do that. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with a recent friend that I have made at the Krishna Temple in Spanish Fork, Utah, Advaita Acharya Das. Advaita, thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. We've just chatted a little bit over the last several months, and just over and over, I was impressed with, this is a really great guy. He'd be great to talk to. Finally, I thought, well, let's just invite him in. And you were, you were so willing. I appreciate that very much. You come from Croatia. That's right. And there are a few people, because if we're older, we grew up with Yugoslavia, and some of the younger people may know that better. But just describe where the country is and where you were born. Fill us in. Yeah, I was born and raised there. And it's just across the street, around the corner, <laughs> an ocean away. And for those who struggle or have no idea, because it is a very small country with rather just maybe four million people, uh, let's say, because my wife is in, from San Antonio. Kalinde, she is from San Antonio. San Antonio has two million. So if you put two cities of like even medium size, or actually smaller size here in the U.S., you have a whole country of Croatia. <laughs> And it's so beautiful, just across the Adriatic from Italy. Yes. Although small in numbers, people are very nice, and the nature is very beautiful. So a kind of combination of two produces a very seek-after tourist destination. It's been more and more popular and known around the world. So, yeah, it's right across Italy. So growing up, I'm wondering what kind of religious background, if any, that you had. Yeah, I, um, I come from the kind of mixed background. My uh, father is from a Catholic background, and my mother is from the Orthodox. Sometimes I joke, <laughs> what does it make me? <laughs> uh, Ortholic? <laughs> or Catodox? Catodox. <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoyed very much being taken by both of my grandmothers to one and the other. I have still memories as a kid of my mother's mother, taking me to the Orthodox Church and with all the incense billowing mm. because they burn a lot, a yes. lot of frankincense and all the outfits and long beers, kind of mystical, very mystical uh, ambience that they create facing the altar. Unlike Catholics, they face their congregation. So I've seen both and uh, I enjoyed both very much so growing up. Did you have a feeling that you did believe in God or some divine being? Yeah. Yeah, deep down, I, I think everybody does. It's just in a process that we kind of get discouraged. Our faith gets rather diminished due to the experiences that we have. Heartbreaks, disappointments, uh, not delivered or answered prayers. I think every every tradition, every path struggles with that. So... Yeah, in that sense, I did grew up being challenged mm -hmm. on those levels as well. I remember maybe six, seven years old, me and my sister, we had bunk beds, right? 
So I was on the top, she was on the, on the bottom, and I was thinking, for the first time, I was thinking about fleeting of life and death and dying, how, you know, the temporary nature of everything. And in a way, I freaked out. I was like, oh, my God. It's like, Alma, we're going to die. <laughs> Alma is my... First realization. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, Alma is my, si my sister's name. And she was down and said, like, what do you mean? <laughs> She's two years younger than I. So she was still too young to even comprehend. Uh, so, oh, my God, we're going to die. And I took her and we both ran to my parents, <laughs> to my parents' uh, room. So we're going to die. We're all going to die. I, I was freaking out. Just about that realization for the first time, that veil was kind of lifted. I remember my, I was in uh, arms of my mother, and she said, don't worry, don't worry, you won't die. And I was thinking to my, I didn't tell her, <laughs> but I was thinking, what do you know? You're going to die too. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, that was the beginning of the quest, I, I, I guess. Uh, and that's a pretty serious realization. It is. It is that the. Um, I mean, there are adults today who logically know that, but have not actually dealt with that fact. Correct. Correct. And it's hard to waken somebody who is pretending they're asleep. <laughs> 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 so, so that brings us. I mean, there, there's corresponding stories of one's own spiritual awakening. So many, so many uh, around the world. But I guess this model kind of corresponds to the model of Buddha and his, his own awakening. If you know the story of Siddhartha, and if you've read the Hesse's book, you know, he was brought up in that kind of bubble of illusion. Yes. And finally, he kind of leaps. It crosses the boundary and realizes the frailty and how temporary and fleeting this existence is. Yeah, that's a nice story. Illustrates that as well. Your search to find truth or connect with, with God or the divine. Tell me about that and how you landed where you did with Krishna consciousness. Well, in terms of search, I think what really amplified or what propelled and generated that propulsion even more is that the whole crisis in Balkans in early 90s. Yes. Where, you know, I was, you know, just coming out of my teenage years. But I remember... Even in teenage years, I was always intrigued by, you know, ancient civilizations, first cultures, just kind of digging about, you know, the origins of human race and not so much maybe even related to God, but just from the point of view of history of the human race, mm. the information about or through that digging of ancient civilization, there was a lot of information about extraterrestrials, uh, life after life, reincarnation, karma, all that was kind of in that same realm and domain of these uh, metaphysical and mystical topics that I think are kind of interested for any young teenager, and they were kind of intrigued by that. Even through movies, I grew up, you know, on sci-fi. <laughs> okay, after the interview, we have to talk favorite books and authors. <laughs> okay, that that sounds good. But I, you know, I remember, you know, star, uh, my one of my first movies that uh, my parents took me to was Star Wars, right? Then later on, just to find out that, you know, Star Wars, according to George Lucas, you know, he directly was inspired by Ramayana, right? So that, that, that kind of closes the full circle right there. You know, Ramayana being the story of, you know, Lord Ram and this ongoing battle and war between good and evil, the light and darkness. And uh, Lucas taking directly that main vein of inspiration 
in, in terms of the narrative. Princes getting kidnapped. Uh, you have this war to bring her back. And it's the same kind of model he admits that he took from one of the two main epics of ancient Indian literature. And we relate to that battle of darkness and light because we have it inside us. Correct, correct. The lower and higher nature always ongoing battle over dominion. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and uh, as a Native American saying goes that in our heart, there's two dogs fighting, right? Which one will win? The one we feed the most. Mm. <laughs> that conflict in Balkans propelled even deeper in that direction, like, what, like why they're suffering. How do we explain of a young kid, two, three, maybe even four, even five years old, like what kind of sinful activity he has to do to yield in a reaction of being blown up by a bomb? So there were some things that I maybe I thought before, but this time it was more real, more intense emotionally mm. that brought up the whole concept of reincarnation of life before this one into something that it's uh, more realistic as the logical explanation, like what this individual and this young body of a two or three-year-old boy or girl had to do to experience this kind of <laughs> mm. unfoldment of looking as a third party unjust destiny. There was no explanation unless you factor in the previous lifetimes. And that brings us to the another layer of my research into that direction of, you know, Vedic thought and karma reincarnation that I taught. I mentioned Penn State University and in New York, NYU and Columbia University in Texas, where I met my wife, UTSA. I always start with the Ian Stevenson in, in, in that regard, who actually in University of Virginia started a whole department of, I think, uh, Department of Perceptual Studies, so if you look him up, uh, you'll see that there's you know, documented cases of young kids, like dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds, that he has done. That apartment, by the way, is still on, even although he's gone, but they're continuing to maintaining his students and students of his students. Documented cases of children who have remembered very vividly facts and informations from far lands, mm. <laughs> different languages, and details that I could actually recollect uh, were just astounding. Mm. There was no way. And usually by the time they're five, those memories kind of fade or they are overlapped and pushed down by newer memories that they come. Many parents, actually, they would admit that there's a, <laughs> even I think even mine, there was a period of just children bobbling about just irrelevant things far places, far and unknown people, but it was all treated in a category as just, oh, he's just bobbling, right? Yeah, <laughs> and not he's take, got a good imagination. Yeah, he has a good, at, at best, right, at best, mm -hmm. but he was dismissed. But nevertheless, you know, Ian Stevenson went to actually notice the pattern and actually do the research Interesting. of these and confirm that they are not just mumbo jumbo, but <laughs> actually they correspond with real people Real places. Uh, he contributed a great deal into that aspect of uh, Vedic thought. Now, you were recommended to the Institute for Applied Spiritual Technology in D.C. by a guru who was where? 
in Croatia or elsewhere? No, because no. Because you have been a lot of places. Yes, <laughs> yes, I've traveled. But um, my spiritual master, His Holiness Bhakti Tirtha Swami, he is born in Cleveland but graduated in Princeton, nevertheless, in a field of psychology. And I think his thesis was, I believe, it was regression, again, past lives mm-hmm. and hypnosis. So in end of 90s, so the war was over. During the war, you know, I continued my search. Like I said, I was propelled digging deeper and deeper. I met devotees of Krishna. Actually, I received some books. I was like, wow, this is the answer. This is kind of a logical assumptions that I was making, and they were confirmed from the ancient text by the great sages. I was okay, so this is not the only life. The life itself is sacred and continues. It's indestructible and changes according to karma, right? So through books, some of my friends, some of my friends that we hang out just in high school, we find out, wow, we are into the same things. So we find out each other on uh, different programs organized by the Hare Krishna movement. And then later, as the war finished and war was over, I read an article about Swami, Bhaktitirtha Swami, who talked about also similar topics. And I've heard these like so many times. I've heard these like same explanations, same teachings. But the way he articulated, the way he phrased it, it really kind of resonated with me. It's like, wow. The way he expresses the same thing that I heard before, it's really, it's really nice. Hmm. And Swami, is that teacher or holy man? Yes, or? Swami means pretty much a gentleman, one who is able to control his senses and properly respect all in their own right. So, but the way he taught, that spoke to you. Correct, yeah. The flavor, uh, the, the, the way he explained, the, the angle that he was taking. Most importantly, when I heard his voice through the, one of those microtapes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mid, I guess mid-90s, somebody went to India. And on these pilgrimages, they do these um, different points of Leela pastimes where Krishna performs his mystical uh, activities. They discuss different details about mm. that particular pastime. Uh, Lord Chaitanya coming and performing public singing and chanting. And then Chandkazi as opposition, the Muslim opposition, he wants to put a stop to it. So there was one of those stop points or uh, points where uh, devotees, senior devotees were discussing. So on that microtape, I heard his voice for the first time. And again, it wasn't what was he saying, but the tone and that emotional charge that carried the care and ultimately the, the love that you felt as he was speaking, that really um, kind of stole my heart. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is the person, he means it. <laughs> this, is, this is not just the, the rehearsed rhetoric, <laughs> but he's really speaking from the heart not only he means it, but he cares about you. Because one, one thing about the doctrines, if we can speak about doctrines, you have a doctrine, but then you have you know, what you applied. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have a teaching and what you have applied. And before people care about what we know, they want to know how much we care. Because we're all sentient beings. We, we function on that emotional level more than anything else. Unfortunate thing about Western civilization, it's all here, it's all in the head. And we have not established at least the balance between the heart and the head. So heart kind of feels neglected. And the whole In fact, sometimes it's even a battle. <laughs> correct. Correct. 
it's an ongoing battle. So it's important. It's important to being able to express love. But I've noticed even deeper issue is our ability to receive love in a modern world. A lot of people are incapable of receiving love. Because we block it or yes. we're protecting ourselves yes. or we, we don't feel, understand. We feel threatened all the time, like somebody is after us. Mm. I mean, walking down the street, you can't even make an eye contact because we have desensitized ourselves from each other, from nature, and cut off very unnatural state. Srila Prabhupada actually was walking in Boston. Srila Prabhupada is the teacher of my teacher. So I'm like a grandkid. And they say grandparents are always more merciful to the grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in a good position. I'm in a good, good spot. <laughs> so anyway, he was walking in Boston. It was morning, cold morning hours, I believe winter time. And he was with his cane. He was breaking the, uh, the ice puddles. And accompanied with a few of his early students, they're all like puzzled. So what is he doing? Like, why is he breaking it? And every time he broke with his cane, he would stop and say, what is the meaning? And he would crack, crack it. And a few steps, again, another puddle. He would take the opportunity. What is the meaning? And it would crack it, crack. <laughs> and everybody was like, what, what is Swami doing? Why is he doing this? And so finally, he turned to them, few of them. He said, so what is the meaning? Why am I doing this? So they all gave a few answers, but none of those satisfied Swami. So finally, he said, this is the job of a guru. He breaks the artificial-like state of the heart. Mm. that it's frozen, incapable of receiving love and giving love. And it makes it flowing as a natural state of water that flows. <laughs> so this is the, the job of a guru, to do that. And you felt that you experienced that. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the knowledge is passed down. I mean, I'm still resisting on many levels, but I have nevertheless in, in the presence of my spiritual teacher, I've seen how his heart has been transformed or touched by his guru. And this fruit of bhakti or devotion, it's passed down very gently like that, from just like a ripe mango tree from the top of the tree. You don't just toss it down because it will be a pulp mm. and uh, wasted or useless. But it very gently is passed down from one hand to another. So in a similar way, this bhakti or devotion which is... Which is a great image. That's very memorable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like illustrations. Mm. How did you live differently when you started to be open to these teachings? Main adjustment was adding Krishna, adding mm -hmm. Krishna, adding God to your existence, mainly through chanting mm -hmm. or meditation, which was done on mostly morning hours because morning hours are the best time to ponder and face our greatest enemy, which is our mind. Mm. Our mind tells us so many things mostly negative things. <laughs> so in that sense, our mind can be our worst enemy, and it is. People are trying to cope with so many different things in the modern world. But the mind is also a beautiful thing. When trained up, it can be our best friend. And I think in Western culture, we think we are our mind. Yes, yes. This is one of the first things that you noticed as you start your meditation, how the mind will just <laughs> go somewhere else. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm trying to meditate, but the mind is not cooperating. And one of the first thing you notice is that you are not that mind, because if you were, you would be able to tell him, hey, work with me. But it's like a separate entity, like a separate thing. Have you ever been distracted 
all, so many times. All, all the time, right? So, so we we have you know we have to. Um, there's a great need to exercise that muscle of free will, if you wish. And sometimes we seek distraction, maybe so we don't have to face what we're thinking or feeling. Correct. The, the weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we, we call those the weapons of mass destruction. Mm. You know, the TV, the, of course, the radio and TV, here we are on the radio. It can be a good thing, right? We're hoping. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the same thing, the same thing, like knife, right? Knife can save life in the hands of a surgeon and the hands of a brutal killer maniac. It can take life. So, the radio, TV... Billboards, they're not bad per se, but as we follow the rabbit hole, where does it take us? <laughs> mm. What's the uh, final and ultimate goal that we have in mind? The mind itself is that tool, is the vehicle by which we determine where we're at. Is it cooperating? Is it our friend? Is it our benefactor? Or it's working against us with all kinds of distractive habits, thinking patterns, almost like a you know broken record that we are trapped and have no or very little say in it so the mantra itself or the sound vibration as i started it allowed me and actually it was a very vivid very a tangible realization that it delivered the mind it uplifted the mm-hmm. mind you know like we see here in utah it's all about life elevated right <laughs> we want to be uplifted and elevated it's all about that and I should mention that the Krishna consciousness, or often referred to as Hare Krishna's, is because of chanting the names of God, the name of God. Correct, correct. And that's where that comes from. Correct. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So the mantra actually comes from two words, manas and triate. Manas means mind, and triate means to deliver or to uplift. So it's the sound vibration that has the power, has the potency to uplift the mind and elevate the consciousness. Unless the mind is peaceful, there's no question of happiness, Mm. right? We can experience some kind of temporary hysteria, like our soccer team has won, (laughs) so everybody's like in a frenzy. Or our, what is it, Coggers here? The Cougars. The Cougars, yeah, they've they've lost. So the whole campus is in depression. <laughs> These are the transient things that you know. It's like they're called vrittis, right? Vritti is the wave or the mental wave, and this it can spike, it can go down in a deep valley, but the whole point is to establish that equilibrium, not in a in a in a cold, senseless way. Keep it the cool head, you know, being mm. being able to keep the cool head through all the ups and all the downs and being able to see like a, a beautiful, clear lake when there's no wind, no waves, mm. you can see all the way to the bottom. Things are more clear, right? Uh, achieve clarity. We talk about that. Clarity. I would, and I would we, love to have more clarity on some subject. So we have to really pacify that turbulent mind. There's no way around it unless with prayer, prayer is a powerful prayer, with the mantra, whatever name of God you're comfortable with, use that as a weapon and really focus on sheltering the mind or giving mind a shelter in that way so you can become satisfied. What things in either your personal practice or because you have done so much teaching 
over the years in different universities, different institutes. What things bring you the most joy about your faith and your practice or your, or your teaching, all of that together? It always comes down to alleviating pain and suffering mm. from others, if they have. And most people in this world, they struggle very hard for existence. And 90%, I would be bold to say, 90%, it's all due to this illusion of thinking that I'm the body, I'm the mind. And forgetting the spiritual amnesia brings about a lot of these artificial, small, petty things that we die for, ultimately die for, thinking that this is all that is <laughs> when it's not. So considering or having to consider that we are not this body, which is the first one of the first lessons on, on any spiritual, more serious spiritual path, and that we are not none of these labels that we claim to be, you know, be a man or woman or you know, Croatian or American or Chinese, black or white, fat or thin, ugly or beautiful. These are all designations. Christian or Buddhist, Hare Krishna or atheist, these are all labels. So mm. one of the first lessons is that we have to shed all of that and focus on really what matters, and that's the self, the pure self. So forgetting that brings a lot of these artificial problems and burdens our shoulders. So you see changes in people as they practice. Correct. As they... Not even practice, as they heard. As they heard, wow, I'm the self. I'm the pure self. You know, I, I give a little, uh, always at the Krishna Lotus Temple here in Spanish Fork, I always give a little exercise. Show your foot, show your knee, show your shoulder, show yourself, point to yourself. And everybody points to, <laughs> to the heart region, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that's where we are. That's where the self is. We are the driver. Yeah, we don't point to our brain, do we? We don't. We, <laughs> we point to the heart region. That's where the soul of the self is situated. And that's where it really hurts when things don't go well with other people, too. And Correct. Wow. Co correct. So, and I always follow up with the question, when you talk, in your everyday talk, how do you talk? Do you say I body or you say my body, right? Most people, of course, there's some smart smart guys that say, well, I say I body. But not really. In, in, your, in your good sound of mind, Nobody talks like that. You, we say, my body. Yeah. So my question to you is like, whose body or who are you? Who are you, right? It has <laughs> to be something separate to have Correct. ownership. Or... So, and I see everybody's light bulb just goes off. Oh, my God. I never thought about that. <laughs> because they're locked in into this illusion, brought up from childhood thinking, unless I, have, I put on a specific T-shirt, I have a certain color of my hair that I can feel content. Mm. But you are already who you are, pure self, completely satisfied, eternal, full of bliss, full of knowledge. And forgetting that causes so much headache, so much pain, so much suffering in the world, and so much strife between this group, that group. We have divided ourselves. Actually, sad things, the thing that saddens me the most, your question is like, what's giving you the most joy? But on the flip side, what saddens <laughs> me the most is seeing religious people fighting over semantics, mm. the way we call things. By definition, God is one. And how do we go about calling him? He has infinite names. He's infinite in himself. So the way you call him, it's really a personal preference. But do call his name because he's 
one and the same with the name. All of his potencies are invested in his name. And that's the mantra. That's the prayer that he can make a difference. So that was just the beginning, helping people realize that, okay, consider this and then try to apply this tool. And my challenge to all of them is always the same. It's like almost like that bucket challenge, (laughs) the ice bucket challenge. Uh You try the prayer, try the mantra for a week in early morning hours. doesn't have to be long. Even 10, 15 minutes can actually create and generate that personal experience. And then don't do it for a week and just see how, you know, how did you felt when you applied this ancient technology and how did you felt when you didn't? And you can judge it for yourself. That's my challenge to everybody Mm -hmm. who is willing to... And for those who do it, what do they say to you? To those who do it, it's always the same. Thank you very much. This is amazing. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So they find some equilibrium or some peace. Provided they follow the instructions, yes. We cannot apply as we want or we hope to be applied, but we have to follow the instructions, just like, you know, making a cake or any kind of recipe. The knowledge that has come to you, does that come from studying a text or is it more from teachings from a guru? There's three things, three sources of inspiration and freedom in life. And really, life is all about those two things. If you can stay inspired on your path and if you can maintain and expand on your freedoms, and I don't mean freedoms to move, although you know we've been restricted since outbreak, mm, <laughs> even, yeah. to, even to move now. But I mean freedom from this, like you know, lower passions and this torments of the mind. Become free from from those those things. That's the real meaning of being free. Free at last. Free at last. Yeah. <laughs> thank God Almighty. Yeah. Thank I Almighty. Free at last. Free at so, last. so if you can inspire me, Stephen. And if you can actually help me with my freedoms, I'll seek your company, not caring where you come from, you know, what group you belong to, what race, nation. If we can actually interact with the world based on those two parameters, I think we'll see more of a beautiful world that it's focused on what matters and less on externals and what really divides us. There is a lot to dig into here. Because if you go back to the earliest we know of the Hindu tradition, we're talking Mm. 5,000 years, something like that. You personally have had the opportunity to work with, teach people in in the U.S., in India, Croatia, in Mexico, in Brazil. You're teaching similar things in each of these different places. Are there some places people react differently to them? But, for instance, do people in a certain culture tend to all react one way and in – for instance, in India, one way, in Brazil, another way, in Mexico or yeah. the U.S., a different way. Yeah, yeah, there, there are external... Cultural nu- hang-ups that we have. Yeah, yeah, or- there's the external uh, nuances and, and cultural differences that, that are there, of course. But that's all on a surface veneer level. Once you scratch... just I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Past that, you can see, you can actually see and realize that everybody's looking for the same thing. And it's very simple. They're looking to express love and hopefully be loved in return. That's all, that's all every, not only people, that's all living, even the animals. That's Mm. all they, no animal enjoys torture. (laughs) Mm. They're all looking for affection and love. So even all living, all sentient being, and we are the kind of on on a tip of a pyramid, gifted with responsibility 
to exercise their free will and to expand our consciousness to godly stratus. Because we knowingly affect other people and other creatures, other living things. Correct. Mm. Correct. We can exercise that free will. It's actually meant to be a blessing, but ends up very often ends up being quite a curse because we don't know how to act properly. And we make a lot of boo-boos. We're the only species that creates and generates trash and garbage. (laughs) <laughs> pollution. <laughs> Pol- and, and, you know, we take a great deal of pride of launching our rovers to Mars. For me, as an as a observer, with a painful realization, well, we trashed this one, now we're going to trash another planet. Like, well, like, what is our contribution? Like, what is there to be proud of? A funny story from Brazil, since you mentioned they took me to a zoo there, and I, um, on the exit, it, it was uh, like a genius uh, setup of a zoo manager there was like a big sign, you know, the the big, you know, the greatest beast in the world. And right below the sign, it was a huge mirror, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it was very impactful as you're leaving the zoo to reflect on, you know, our footprint, our contribution to the world. Like, what what is it? I'm not talking about just hiding behind a collective of humanity. I'm talking on an individual level. What each and every one of us, because it matters. Mm. It does. You know, a lot of people think it doesn't, but we all make a difference. And we should take a great pride in that, that I'm making a difference. How do you perceive God working in your life? Through people like you. (laughs) 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 Through even strangers. Mm -hmm. They can say some things that it will go straight to the heart as if God has spoken through them. And if we have ears to hear, if we open, if we have open mind to hear, then we'll perceive these guiding signs, not only guiding, but inspirational signs all around us. Because God is situated in the heart of all living, we might not be able to see his face, but we'll feel and experience his guiding hand in our everyday life as we make ourselves properly situated on a path. That means that we do our part, and then God can do his part. Hmm. Advaita Acharya Das. Advaita, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. This was just part one, right? <laughs> I, it feels like it. it, feels like <laughs> yeah, it. we just scratched the surface. I just want to say thank you, Stephen, for having me. Uh, of course, these are the great topics. They're ocean-like. They're ocean-like. They're, they have no end. They're very vast. I hope that something that we're shared today It's useful and inspirational for our audience. And I want to thank your audience, our audience, all the way around the world, especially if they're listening. My uh, loving family there in Stobrec in Croatia. Mm, Yes. My mother and father, Petar and Radmila, or Rada, (laughs) and all the wonderful devotees of the Lord worldwide. That's our time for today. Thanks to Advaita Das for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. And if you enjoy the show, be sure you leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts. Help spread the word. All of our episodes are online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. 
I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.